When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Condensed Histories. I'm your host, Jem Daduchu, and what we do on this podcast is we take a piece of pop culture and we reveal how, lurking just underneath the surface, like a sandworm in the desert, there is some real history influencing this presumably completely made-up piece of pop culture. And this time round, you have got a deal. You are getting two for the price of one, and you are getting two of the greatest creations in all of science fiction, all in one, I don't know, I'm saying it right now, so I'm going to guess 35-minute podcast, pretty good condensing, wouldn't you say, of both Frank Herbert's Dune and Isaac Asimov's Foundation series, because both of these extraordinarily ambitious books, series, call them whatever you want, have been turned into major pop culture icons. I can't call them both movies, because one's a TV show and the other one's a movie, although the budgets are about the same, but they both come out at the same time, which they were never meant to. How weird is that? So all of this is coming up in the podcast, which means, of course, we're going to have to talk about the rise and fall of empires. We're going to have to talk about the Silk Road. We're going to have to talk about colonialism and the exploitation of resources. All of this is in there in both of these works. And also, of course, I am going to have to tell you about my own personal experiences with these things. So, let's get on with it. Yes! Get on with it! Let's start with June because it's... Is it the bigger one? I'm going to say it's the bigger one because it's a movie and... I don't know, possibly in the consciousness out there, people know Dune better than they know Foundation. I think that's in no small part because of... I don't know the book sales. I'm going to guess that Dune's probably outsold Foundation. I'm talking about all of the Dune books here, but let's just start with the first one. But I think one of the key things is there was a movie of Dune, and there hasn't really been an attempt to bring Foundation to the screen previously. So... I am not going to summarize June here. I'm presuming you're tuning into this, tuning to Juning, that you already have the basic idea of what's going on. And I'm not going to be talking about the beat by beat story, if you like. I'm instead going to be talking about the larger ideas that Frank Herbert came up with. 
and pull them all in together because I'm going to say the metaphors are fairly obvious there. The allegory is there for everyone to see and actually it does tie into foundation. I'm clearly not the only person who thought that because when I went to see my screening of June, at the beginning of it, there was a trailer, commercial, call it what you will, for foundation. When I was a child at the edge of the galaxy, I heard stories about a man who could forecast the future. Clearly, the people were thinking, if you like one, you'll probably like the other. The other thing was my experience of going to see this movie was slightly sullied. Dune is famously considered an unfilmable book. The reason for that isn't because modern special effects can't keep up with this stuff. I think actually the special effects in the 1984 David Lynch version, they're not bad. Certainly for their time, you get the idea of giant spaceships whizzing around and all this kind of stuff. That, you know, that, that works. The problem is it's so dense. If there's going to be a comparison for Dune, it's probably Lord of the Rings. If you're trying to fit it all into two hours, you can't. It's going to fail. Ask David Lynch about that. It doesn't really fit neatly into just one movie, and everybody is saying Denise Villeneuve's Dune is an absolute masterpiece. I would agree with them. If you've just gone like, I'm worried about COVID, you have very good reasons to be worried about COVID. Or it's a case of I've got HBO Max, so I'm in America and I can just do that. Good for you. But I'm telling you right now, you need to go to a cinema, a movie theater to go and see this film. It's meant to be seen on a big screen. You know, when the sandworms arrive, it is a scene of awe, which you're just not going to get looking on your phone. The other thing is the soundscape. So many people have talked about this. My kids, when I walked out of it, they went, that was the loudest movie I'm, I've ever heard. And I, I know what they meant because there's an awful lot of very deep baseline to it. Actually, little sidebar here to other types of movies. We obviously have a spectrum of vision and a spectrum of sound that we can, you know, there's a certain limit to the range that we can hear and we can see. For example, we can't see infrared, okay? So with that in mind, when you get these very low notes, these very deep reverberations, we tend to associate it with size and scale. And this movie just reverbs all the time because so many big, massive things are on screen. And very cleverly, Villeneuve knows how to create a world. And rather than just showing you a really big spaceship in space because there's there's nothing to compare it with at that point. You get lots of shots where it's next to a mountain or next to a building or next to rows and rows of troops. So you've got a point of reference to realize, yeah, that's big. But the, the sidebar on this is the fact that we can sense rather than hear some very low ultrasounds. And so you get some movies, for example, the very first paranormal movie, the horror movies. Some horror movies have two scores. There's the music you can hear, and then there's the kind of ultrasound tracks at the scary moments and it's one of these things where your ears can't hear it but your body can sense there's something there that you're not quite being able to perceive which adds to the overall horror and scares of these movies very clever or you could call it cheating i don't know that's on you but if you've ever sat there in a horror movie and just felt unnerved and you're not sure why it could well be because of one of these subsonic soundtracks going on beneath your senses. Whoa, spooky. So anyway, yes, really do try and see it in the cinema. But the other reason, selfishly, I'm saying go see it in the cinema is it's 
it's a little cheeky. They promote it as June. Everyone's June, 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 June. And then when you see the opening things, there's June part one, which is absolutely the right way to go. As I've just said, it's a very dense book. You can't fit it all into two and a half hours. So they need another movie, but the other movie hasn't been greenlit yet. And what a lot of reviewers have said, if he completes it to the same quality as the first half, this will be a science fiction masterpiece up there with the likes of the original Star Wars. You can't win, Darth. If you strike me down, I shall become more powerful than you can possibly imagine. Or the first Matrix. You take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. It'll be one of these cornerstone sci-fi movies people will be referring back to in 30 years' time. If, however, it doesn't quite make enough money, and it seems to have opened relatively well in the States, but I mean, you know, 40 million against 170 million budget, we need more. We need people to go back and see it. And with HBO, they might not. It opened fairly well in China as well. I know that it's already grossed about 130 million worldwide before we get to the English-speaking nations. So it's on track. Warner Brothers has made positive noises, but they really need to say yes to get this thing finished. Finish him! I digress a little bit there. June, the key thing is everybody's fighting over Arrakis or Arrakis, call it whatever you want, this big planet with lots of sand dunes on it, and it's got this thing called Spice, the Spice Melange, as it's never called in this movie, but they don't ask say it a lot in the David Lynch film. In this time, the most precious substance in the universe is the Spice Melange. So the spice, yes, if you were to ingest it, it would basically make you hallucinate. It's a bit like a drug. But the key thing is these navigators, which aren't in the original Dune, but are pretty much the first thing you see in David Lynch's Dune, this big cabinet full of smoke and this weird sort of, basically it looks like an alien. They don't explain the fact that this is a navigator and they were once human. I was a human being once. They basically need to take the spice so they can travel interstellarly. They're basically through the warp or through the, you know, traveling through hyperspace or whatever. That's how they get to do it. It is basically the key resource to argue about. And if you can't see an analogy written by a man in the 1960s about oil, then shame on you. Come on, you can do better than that, okay? Now, I've done a lot about Dune. The other thing is Isaac Asimov. Now, interestingly, Apple has a thing for Isaac Asimov. He gets a cameo in Mythic Quest, which is a comedy about a video game. They sort of go back to the to the 60s. Oh, no, actually, very early 70s. And Isaac Asimov is in it briefly, and he's a key influence to one of the characters. If you haven't seen Mythic Quest, it's... Well, the problem with comedy is hard to recommend because I don't know what makes you laugh, but it's... Uh, I, I enjoy it. And the very last episode of the first season was the first TV show to do a really good lockdown episode. That was how creative they were. It's very adult for the record. It's lots of swearing and things like that. So it's not suitable for the kids. But there is this one episode, which is kind of like a tiny little vignette set in the 1970s, Asimov's there. And then of course they spent an absolute fortune on Foundation. There's even a podcast to explain the episodes of Foundation as they go along. Now, the thing about Asimov is generally, he doesn't do action, he does these big ideas. Some critics have said he's great at creating these worlds, but he's not so great at making exciting things happen in these worlds. 
And I think there's an element to that. Also, he bashes the books out. Famously, the most he ever did in 24 hours was 52,000 words, which is remarkable. Now, recently, I will tell you so much more of this when it's actually come out. I recently came up with a book idea. It's sort of similar to this actual podcast. I, I say no more than that. And as soon as I came up with the idea, I've never experienced this before, the words just started pouring out of me. Now, on top of a day job, on top of being a dad, on top of recording stuff like this, I got the first 80,000 word draft in 11 days. Faster than a speeding bullet. That is a remarkable pace. You ask any writer and they go, you're averaging something like 6,000 words a day consistently and you're, you're doing all the other stuff. Amazing, remarkable. But so that, that puts it into context that if Asimov was able to do 52,000 in 24 hours and using a typewriter rather than a word processor, I'm sure there were tons of spelling mistakes in it, but that's... That's ludicrous, okay? And to give you an idea that 80,000 words is kind of a, a standard size novel today. So it was a novella rather than necessarily a novel, but I, I digress. But the point about foundation, as I said, you know, he's not Mr. Action. This is why so many people got offended by iRobot. Perhaps his most famous book is called iRobot, which critically has these three laws of robotics which protects humans from a robot revolution and uprising. Three laws, yeah perfect circle of protection. A robot cannot harm a human being. It was just turned into a Will Smith vehicle. It had, apart from the title and the basic idea of robotics, everything else was just a Will Smith sci-fi movie. Now, it's a fun Will Smith movie. It is actually being used in theater classes and movie classes to show overt product placement. Man, that guy likes Reeboks, is all I'm going to say, and Audis and so on and so forth. The point is, it's just not really Asimov. Hollywood just took an idea and then smeared it with all the Hollywood cliches they could to get bums on seats, and it worked. It was a big hit, and it's a thoroughly enjoyable movie in and of itself. It's just not Asimov. And Foundation, however, the show, is very loyal to Asimov's ideas. The heroes are mathematicians. There are multiple situations. There isn't a lot of action. As you go along, there is more action, but it's more about the politics and the philosophy and people think and formulate theorems to get out of situations. And the whole point of it is this concept, this which Asimov genuinely believed in called psychohistory. You're familiar with my work, psychohistory? Every mathematician has read your theory. It's not a theory. There's this guy called Harry, and he's a genius mathematician. And in Foundation, there is this massive galactic empire. And he comes up with this formula to show that basically it's going to collapse pretty soon. And when it does, there will then be 10,000 years of a dark age, and then people will start coming out the other side. But if they prepare, if they basically get the greatest minds to sort of create almost like an arc of knowledge on this planet called Terminus, they'll be able to come up with this thing that will stop that dark age. Well, it won't stop it, sorry, but it'll reduce it from 10,000 years to just 1,000 years, and then basically civilization and calm will return. It's a brilliant idea. This is led, by the way, if you follow these podcasts because of Warhammer, a lot of people, particularly now that Dune and Foundation are out going, oh, well, look how they've ripped off Warhammer. And if you think that, you really need to go back and start doing your research. You're just not thinking fourth dimensionally. Frank Herbert's June came out in the 60s, okay? 
I had one person turning around going, well, you do know Dune Emperor came out in 1985 and Games Workshop was launched in 1975. You don't know your history about any of those things just by putting that down. Because, yes, you're right, the Emperor one, it's pretty much the last book, but the first book came out in the 60s, okay? Yes, Games Workshop was launched in the 70s, but it was purely a fantasy. You know, they were interested in stuff like Lord of the Rings and Dungeons and Dragons. They didn't launch their sci-fi one called Warhammer 40,000 Rogue Trader initially until 1987, which is even after the Emperor Dune book. Sorry about that. And yeah, it's clearly heavily influenced by all these things. A lot of people said, oh, well, you know, Dune is the best Warhammer movie without the word Warhammer on it. Previously, a lot of people said that it was Event Horizon. And I buy the Event Horizon one. That is quite a clever connection to this whole thing of traveling through the warp and chaos and all that kind of stuff. That is quite clever. But other people have said Starship Troopers. That's basically the Imperial Guard versus the Tyranids. Yes, but but why is nobody mentioning aliens? Because that is also clearly Imperial Guard versus Tyranids, and even the style of the colonial marines and aliens clearly influenced the Imperial Guard of Warhammer. But again, all this stuff, well, exception of Starship Troopers, but Starship Troopers, the book, again, uh, Robert Heinlein, way before anything from Warhammer. So, yeah, do you know what? Warhammer wasn't created in a vacuum, and all you need to do is look at all these other influences, being all those sci-fis that I've just mentioned, plus also things like 2000 AD and the artists from 2000 AD working on the first version of Warhammer 40,000. Come on, guys. You know, you don't live in a bubble. Warhammer is brilliant. I love it. And Warhammer 40,000 has gone into its own direction. It's, uh, you know, I've done lots of podcasts about it. I'm clearly a fan. But but don't start pretending that the tail's wagging the dog, all right? But this idea of psychohistory and the fact that there's a person who can mathematically plot the time of decline, Asimov eventually gave up on. He said there are too many moving pieces, and he's right, by the way. But in the at least the books, the idea is that psychohistory can chart the rise and fall of civilizations, but it can never chart an individual. And can an individual change things? Can an individual make the mathematics wrong? That's a very strange thing to hang a whole TV series on, but that's basically what they're hanging it on. I, I give them 10 out of 10 for the ambition here, for the fact that their first reaction is not to grab a laser gun and have a snarky crew of, of, of ragamuffins sort of like traveling through the universe like a cheap knockoff Guardians of the Galaxy or you know, Star Wars kind of thing. It's very high sci-fi. So Dune and Foundation in terms of tone, vision, they look very different, but in terms of tone, these are high sci-fi in the same way Lord of the Rings is high fantasy. None of this has any anchor in our world at our time. You know, something like Back to the Future is technically science fiction, but it's set in a period we can all relate to, because there's no such thing as time machines, that's the science fiction bit, but everything else kind of is real and we can relate to to a certain extent. Here's a sad fact on Back to the Future, by the way. We're now further away from 1985 the 1985 is from 1955. Sad. Ah, that, where are we? According to my calculations, this is the year 2015, Marty. The future. <laughs> Whoa, 2015, that, that, that's heavy. All these people must have got here in their flying cars. Uh, no, you know what? We never figured out flying cars, actually. We never did figure that out. Oh. So there we go. But the thing I'm going to sort of connect Foundation and Dune with is the, the thing about Dune is the central planet of Arrakis, Arrakis, call it what you will. I've heard it both ways. It's, it's made up word. It's always worth remembering that. 
It used to be run by the Harkonnen, House Harkonnen, this powerful group called the Harkonnens are getting all the spice. But the emperor, who is above all the houses, kicks the Harkonnens out and brings House Atreides in to do it. Now, the idea is to get these two houses at each other's throats so that they, because they're so powerful, they'll go to war with each other and it'll reduce both their power bases because the emperor is worried about too much power. In other words, worried about the empire losing its balance and equilibrium. This is fairly similar in concept between the, you know, the huge umbrella helicopter level look down on the overall plot to something like foundation as well. These rise and fall of empires is something that we see again and again in history. And that's an interesting thought. So I'm going to talk about spice now on June. As I've already said, this is the thing that's absolutely essential to keeping the empire running. It creates interstellar travel. Without it, it stops, which is why the comparison is poor when people say it's a bit like the Silk Road or it's a bit like the spice trade with the Portuguese and the, and the Dutch with the spice islands of Asia, which we now call places like Indonesia, by the way. That doesn't really work. Now, to give you an idea, things like cinnamon and nutmeg at their key, when, when they could only be found out in Asia, they were more expensive per pound than gold because... It was incredibly hard to extract. It had to travel halfway across the known world. And yeah, so by the time it got there, it was actually cheaper to mine gold. So in that regards, I can see the comparison. They are incredibly expensive. It's just that ancient Greece, which came up with the word cinnamon, by the way, could survive without it. What they couldn't survive without is something like bronze or, or other absolute key ingredients. So the spice comparison there doesn't work. The spice melange. But the thing is that when we look at the Silk Road, that's also interesting because it does kind of tie into this. So if you're not aware, the Silk Road isn't a road. That's the first thing to talk about. It's a trade network between China and basically the Middle East slash going on into to Europe. It is the crisscrossing of resources and goods to trade along these routes. Silk from Asia, furs from Northern Europe, for example, and amber also came in from there. All these things went backwards and forwards. And weirdly, what this trade network needed more than anything else was a powerful empire sitting there in Central Asia to allow the free flow of goods. And every time there was a sort of an anarchy, every time there was an explosion of things like the Huns or the original sort of like Turkic invasions of the Middle East, the Turks are different ethnically to Arabs and later on the Mongols. All of these things caused disruption, which led to a temporary breakdown of the Silk Road. But to give you an idea, again, the value of silk. Silk obviously comes from silkworms. The process of synthesizing silk goes back thousands of years in China. And it became so valued that anybody who tried to share the secret of silk production or indeed smuggling out some silkworms to another place was punishable by death because that's how much money the emperors of China were earning through revenues, tax revenues and trade revenues from silk. But saying that though, by about 500 AD, there was silk production in Constantinople. So it took a while, but it still got out. 
You know, people are willing to risk their lives if it's worth money. There's a, a truth, be it in science fiction, fantasy or history or today. There's always somebody who's willing to put their neck on the line if they can turn a profit. I find that very fascinating about humans. So somebody, we have no idea who, managed to get the secret of silk out. But even so, silk production was was bigger, you know, more almost industrial in China than anywhere else in the world. So that's an example, but also spices would go backwards and forwards and all these different sort of technologies too. This was really important and it, it lasted from the Roman Empire, give or take, all the way through till about the 1700s. Because by then, well, first of all, maritime trade was faster and slicker. Rising empires like Britain, for example, and the Dutch and the Portuguese could kind of get this stuff from China quicker and faster back to Europe than traveling on camels all the way across Central Asia, which by then was, was more anarchic. There wasn't much of centralized power then. Also, by then, there's just this huge tilting of influence by the New World. One of the things that killed off the Venetians as a major trading port, because the Venetians fought for centuries against other trading hubs like Genoa, principally. Those two were at each other's throats for, for centuries. Both of them traded out east. Both of them had connections to the Silk Road. But by the end, Venice gobbled up all competitors. But Venice was unable to really build trade patterns into the new world. Really, from the 1500s, Venice is beginning to turn into a backwater. It's becoming far less relevant in terms of a trade empire. But if you roll back to, let's say, 1300, Venice and Genoa were both some of the richest, most evolved cities on planet Earth. Just re remarkable there, showing you how important the trade was in that situation. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. So 
So there we go. That's that's a, just a tiny touch on the Silk Roads, a tiny touch on the trade that's going on. And I think you can tell that's very different to what's going on in June. And, and although foundation with this sort of rise and fall of empires does show you, you can sort of almost see it writ large through the trading through Central Asia, through all these various trade trading posts. Just one brief thing, the Mongols, in the 1200s, the Mongols basically captured almost everywhere, really. And they created this period of great stability. It was a huge boom after the initial shockwave of the Mongols rampaging through. And like in 1258, they, they, they destroyed Baghdad. End of another sort of empire, if you like. The last caliph of the, of the Islamic world was killed at Baghdad in 1258. To give you an idea, the river Tigris nearby ran black with ink for all the, all the manuscripts that were destroyed in the rivers. That's terrible. That knowledge lost forever. But the other thing is they killed so many people. Estimates vary. This is one of the rare occasions where the people who did the massacring might have actually underdone it. It was at least 300,000 people. And remember, this is before the era of modern weapons. So somebody had to literally hack, or people had to literally hack 300,000 people minimum, maybe as much as half a million people. Baghdad was one of the biggest cities in the world at that time. Well, until 1258 and the Mongols. And this horrible description, I always remember that the cobblestones were slick and slippery with human fat. Ugh. But after that initial shockwave, for, for a century, there was this period of great prosperity because it was all part of the great Mongol Empire. And therefore they had this sort of safety and security and also trade networks from Europe all the way through China into Korea as well. So yeah, remarkable what they were able to, to achieve there. Instead though, Let's look at this kind of colonial smash and grab that can happen. And I'm going to be a bit controversial here because, you know, look, if you want to argue empires are bad, I hear you. The Death Star will be completed on schedule. And if you want to argue that local people should always run local affairs, I hear you. This is a very hard thing to argue against. But just turning around and saying empire is bad, you're saying that all empires make the same choices and they don't. And actually, if you want an example of probably one of the nicest, I mean, this is sort of like the least worst punch in the head, okay? I guess none of these are good for the locals. Not I guess, none of these are good for the locals, but the least worst option was probably the British Empire. Now, something I'm very proud of with Britain is we rake ourselves over the coals. We do not sit there and go, ah, oh, the British Empire is amazing. We talk about slavery, which is absolutely true and is absolutely a conversation to be had. But it is also worth pointing out that Britain was the first major imperial power. Yes, I'm aware that Haiti and Denmark got there first, but come on, I'm talking about Haiti and Denmark here. Britain was the first major power to actually ban slavery. Now, you can absolutely say, well, it was way too late. Okay, but they did it. And they did it while they were still earning money from it. It wasn't like it's not profitable anymore. They could have kept going, but they basically recognized it was wrong and stopped. And again, if you're going to sort of say, you know, because of slavery, we can never say anything good about the British Empire, then you've got to say that about every empire, because they all had slaves. We don't really talk about, we're aware that gladiators were slaves, but we don't really talk about the enslaving of millions of people over the centuries of Roman rule. We, we just don't tend to equate that much slavery to it. But it was there. I'm sorry. When the Italians turned up in Britain, it was not good news for the locals. Okay? So yeah, th that is always worth remembering. 
The Persians had it. You know, in the New Testament, what Jesus says, you can't argue with any of it. You know, he makes good points. Turn the other cheek. Do unto others of your do, do unto uh, each other, etc. All this good stuff about being nice to each other. But even then, because the concept of slavery was so ingrained in society, he says, slaves obey your masters, which is not a helpful phrase in the modern world. So, yeah. Every civilization had slavery. We could be talking about the Aztecs all the way to the Zulus. Everyone had slaves. So yeah, that, that's a thing. But if you are, you know, into liberal democracy, that was a concept originally created in Greece and it failed. They were conquered by the Spartans, which went back to basically kings and democracy didn't exist for thousands of years. And then the first place that, re oh, hang on, sorry, just before people start jumping in there and going, I think you'll find Iceland had a very sort of a democratic community. Okay, there are a few outliers, like I think the Isle of Man and definitely Iceland. Yes, there were some tiny little places with a population of 27 that didn't influence the rest of the world, that kind of went along in a communicable, democratic, so almost sort of socialist kind of way. And it's worth remembering that they like killing whales and, you know, occasionally each other too. Let's put that to one side. But the first major power to start playing around with democracy was England. And, you know, I am not going to turn around and say that democracy in 1700 England was perfect. You're not eligible to vote. Well, why not? Because virtually no one is. Women, peasants, chimpanzees. <laughs> Lunatics, lords. That's not true. Lord Nelson's got a vote. He's got a boat, boring. <laughs> Only basically rich white men could vote. But hey, it was better than anybody in France, for example, or anybody in India, for that matter. And so it was very imperfect, but it started evolving from there. And so because England, then later Britain, had this empire and was used to this concept of a parliament, and you know, in essence, what was the English Civil War about? Leading up to the English Civil War, Parliament was Parliament started in Henry II's time, by the way. That's in the late 1100s, but it's sort of like evolved more in the 1200s. So you know, we're talking medieval, but basically the king would ask his advisors. By the time we get to the 1600s, there is this tension between Parliament and the Kings and them saying, basically Parliament saying, stop asking us, we need to start telling you what to do. That's in essence the core reason behind the Civil War and sometimes called War of Three Nations. And after that period, with the restoration eventually of Charles II, that's the tipping point. From that point onwards, Parliament only gets more and more powerful. And this idea of liberal democracy and having the right to sort of like freedom of assembly and all this kind of stuff, it comes from the British Empire. That concept just simply wasn't there in, let's say, South Africa in 1700. It, it just wasn't. So, yes, you know, one of the good things about the empire was this thing. And it was sort of like the spreading of some of these positive ideas. And if you look at America, you know, the original 13 colonies from the British side of things, they were poor. They earned their money from farming and tobacco and, yes, slavery. Yes, I get that. But the point is, 
they weren't like the Spanish. When you want to look at an empire going really bad, look at Spain. They basically turned up, destroyed the Aztec and Inca empires, and, you know, also empires, also with slaves. These were not just a unified people, by the way, just worth pointing that out. But then what they did was they just plundered the place. They weren't there to sort of set up farmsteads. When they did send in their own Hispanic people, they were there to be the lords, not to be the farmers, and they were there to exploit as much as possible. I said earlier about how the Silk Road was disappeared because of all the stuff coming in from the, the New World. Yes, that's because Spain was making a fortune just ripping out as much gold and silver as they could out of these new found nations. So, you know, Spain, by comparison, ran for a while an fabulously wealthy empire. But because they weren't there trying to build systems to make these areas run effectively, not independently, that's going too far for the British, but at least they could be autonomous under a, a local governor or something like that. They could earn money. That's an important thing to, to consider. So yes, and when you look at the Mongol Empire, I've already talked about all the plundering there. A lot of empires just came in, just beat up the locals and took whatever they wanted to. And that is exactly what you're seeing in June. That's, you know, if you like, the thing about Foundation is sort of setting up this group that are going to stop the Dark Age from happening. Many years from now, if humanity is to climb from the ashes, the coming generations will need the knowledge to build upon. That's never happened in history. Although it's a very interesting idea. They extrapolate it more in the, in the TV series. There's actually one bit where you can clearly see the young woman who's become a mathematician working for Harry. She's come from a civilization where basically books and learning are illegal, in, in essence. You know, they, people have just fallen into their superstitious ways. And there's definitely been that kind of slipping away from knowledge that's happened throughout history, that these kind of theocracies, that's a religious organization running a country, Technically, today, Iran is a theocracy, and there are tensions there uh, between the people who want to do it the religious way and the people that want to do it perhaps the more democratic way or the way that might be seen better for science. It's not all a paradise in Iran right now, okay? Now, flipping that round, throughout history, I mean, perhaps one of the most famous ones is uh, the bonfire of the vanities. Uh, you get a period where Florence was taken over by this sort of mad monk, and, and the reason it's called the bonfire of the vanities, they literally burnt lots of classical paintings and things like that, or Renaissance paintings, I should say. To them, they were fairly new, but also books as well, and it's like, we need to go back, think about the Taliban and all these other sort of religious organizations, the far-right religious sort of like groups in America. Forget about everything we've learnt, we need to go back to the religious texts and anything that challenges the religious texts is scary and awful and we're not going to listen to it. That is deeply unhelpful for scientists, okay? Back to June, this idea that they're taking out this, this spice but they're being attacked by the locals, the Fremen. And the thing about the, the, the Fremen is this could be the Taliban in Afghanistan. This could be the Americans during the American War of Independence, you know, sort of like hit and run tactics against the empire. You know, this comparison could be placed almost everywhere. The empire has more of everything. But this asymmetric guerrilla, nowadays term used insurgency warfare, is the only way these small groups can fight. And if they are effective, think, for example, the Vietnam War, they know the terrain better. They can escape into the wilderness 
in Vietnam jungle, in Arrakis, that would be sand and mountains. It means that it can be incredibly hard to win those fights for the imperial forces. But generally in warfare, for example, the Vietnam War is an example of this. It's, it's a myth to say that the Vietnam War was just won by the rebels, the, the Viet Cong. They pretty much got wiped out at the end of the Tet Offensive in 1968. It was the, then the NVA, the North Vietnamese Army, which was backed by you know, really not guerrilla forces like the Soviet Union and China that meant that they could win. You, you, you can cause trouble. You can, you can really drain resources with these insurgencies. It's very, very rare in history that you outright win a war without the help of some external power. The American War of Independence couldn't have been won without French assistance. Everyone talks about Jamestown, but there were almost 50% of the forces surrounding the British fort of Jamestown were French Marines, and the only way that they were able to get this coastal fortification completely surrounded was with the French Navy. So, yeah, yeah, they needed the French there. So, sorry, no, no offense to any Americans listening. So when you put all this together, you can see how this is all a case of basically empires doing the best they can to extract these resources to to enrich themselves. There's nothing in it for the locals. You know, that's also worth pointing out. And I think June shows that really well. I think Foundation has a very interesting angle on it. I think Warhammer owes a huge debt of gratitude to these other things. So all of that can be wrapped up in June. And as I said at the beginning, please, if you have any passing interest in this, don't wait for HBO or wait to watch it on TV. Go and see a cinema experience. You will thank me afterwards. That's it, and as always, hopefully, speak to you soon. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.